0: So we are in Philippians chapter 2, continuing on in our Philippians series entitled, Philippians. Um, Let me give you guys some quick back history, if, uh, if you haven't looked at this passage yet. So, Around 49 to 51 AD, Paul visits and helps establish the church in Philippi. Um, Scott last week showed a, a map where Philippi is in the area of Macedonia, and around 49 to 51, somewhere in that range, Paul goes and visits this place and helps establish a church there. Um, Fast forward to about 60 AD, somewhere in that range, so fast forward about 10 years, and Paul finds himself in prison in Rome. So he is in chains, in prison. He's in something called the Praetorium, which was essentially the, uh, the place where all of Caesar's guard would have been hanging out. So he was kind of in a VIP section of the jail, all right? Apparently, the guys there liked him, and so they kind of gave him an upgrade, which also gave him freedom to have visitors and to have people come and share with him and so on and so forth. Um, And then he also had access to a lot of the royal guard, and uh, we just know from history that uh, even some of the royal guard came to Jesus, which was awesome. Um, There's some passages that kind of mention that. But anyway, so fast forward, like I said, about 10 years from the time that Paul goes and visits and helps establish the church in Philippi, and uh, he is writing this letter to the Philippian church. Uh, Most scholars agree that this is the time frame. He's sitting in prison writing uh, this letter, okay? So kind of picture that, get that in, in in your thought processes as he's writing this letter. Now, um... One of the things that I wanna talk about today is in Philippians chapter two, it's, it's a super famous section of scripture uh, and it's called a Christ hymn. And it talks about uh, Jesus not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he took on the form of a servant and he emptied himself and, and all of that kind of stuff, which we're gonna look at and maybe you're familiar with if you've read this passage before. But I wanna kind of give you some backdrop As to the purpose of Paul writing this before we get into it. Okay? So, like I said, picture Paul is in Rome and he's writing this letter. He also knows that in Philippi, the Roman culture is deeply ingrained there. And also, one of the issues that's going on in Philippi is a disagreement in the church. There's a couple ladies that are disagreeing, um, and that's causing a little bit of tension. And so uh, these are some of the backdrops that are motivating Paul writing this letter. So um, one of the things that was a pervasive thought process in Rome during this time is something called imperial cult worship. And uh, basically what that means is that imperial cult worship is when the people of Rome were giving uh, the deification or godlike status to the people, the person that was running the country, like the Caesar. So whoever was the king, the Caesar of that day, the Roman people had a tendency to give godlike status to. They would say that this person is a god or is like a god. It's giving deity to the rulers of Rome. It's the belief system that these men were either descendants of gods, or they were the representation of certain gods in the flesh. What does that sound like? Philippians chapter 2, Jesus, not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself. Becoming obedient, right? So understand the backdrop. Part of why Paul is writing this is to combat a false belief system and to reinstate this idea of Jesus as the Son of God, okay? It's important to understand why he's writing these things, okay? So for instance, when Paul would have visited the church in Philippi, um, the emperor of Rome at that day was a guy by the name of Claudius, he ruled um, uh, around the time that, that, um, that uh, Paul would have visited Philippi. And one of his titles was Savior of the World. Hello, who does that sound like? Paul is trying to combat a belief system. Um, just to kind of give you an, an example of what I'm talking about. Um, look on the screen. I don't know where it's going to be, but there's going to be a picture of a coin. And there it is right there. Perfect. Okay. So this is a uh, a coin. They did a drawing of it because the coin itself was really hard to read. So um, this is in an archaeological dig in the area of Philippi. Okay. And this is actually a Philippian coin that would have been circulated during Paul's day when he visited uh, and helped plant the Philippian church. Okay, so now what that says, this is a dedication to Claudius. The guy on the left-hand side, yeah, your left-hand side, is Claudius. Not, not too good of a looking guy, I might add, but uh, nonetheless, he's, he was the emperor. And on the, the the part that has Claudius on it is the inscription Tiberius Claudius Caesar Augustus, which essentially means he is the the ruler, um, highest priest. The word highest priest is written on there. What does that sound like? In Hebrews, when it talks about Jesus being the the king and the high priest, right? Once again, Paul is combating a belief system. Another term on that coin is uh, the term Tribunal powers, which is kind of like the Trinity, right? A tribunal, a group of people that are, are ruling um, the 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 nation, and uh, and then the word emperor. So then, when you flip it over on the other side, there's a picture of two altars and two men. Th- those are kind of girly looking men, if I might add, but men nonetheless, and. Uh, One of them is Caesar Augustus, and the other is Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was the one that kind of instated this idea of uh, Roman deification. He transitioned Rome from a a republic to an empire. And then Augustus, the one beside him, was uh, his nephew, and he took over after uh, Julius Caesar was killed by the way the Roman senate y'all remember that story Julius Caesar was stabbed in the back um, by the Roman senate and they assassinated him and then the very next thing that they did is they deified him they made him a god they do that because they know that people follow this guy and they love him so they kill him to take his power but then they deify him to keep the people at peace they say well he just transitioned he's a god now It's all a part of this indoctrinated system that Rome was trying to do. So um, as an example, on the side of the coin that has Julius Caesar and uh, Augustus, it says the word divus Augustus, which means divine, Augustus divine emperor, divine elevated one. The word Augustus means to be elevated. So uh, that just kind of gives you an, an idea of what's going on in this time period. Now, when Paul would have written this letter around 60 AD, the guy that was in charge was a guy by the name of Nero. Nero wasn't a very good guy. He didn't like Christians very much. Um, this is going to be a little more than PG, so if you're um, offended, I'm so sorry, uh, Nero would take Christians and impale them and light them on fire and use them as torches to walk through his garden. So he wasn't a nice guy um, by any stretch of the imagination. He had a statue that was built in the middle of Rome made out of bronze, and it was 100 feet tall. It was called Colossus, and it was of himself. And uh, he connected himself with two Roman gods, one named Apollo, who was the god of medicine, the god of healing, uh, the god of music. He believed that he was a great musician, um, and so he kind of deified it, connected himself with Apollo. Uh, and then the other one is the sun god, Sol. He believed that he was connected to the sun and actually had a crown that looks like stars over his, that was built um, uh, on this huge statue. He was called, one of his titles was the Lord of the World. So you can kind of understand the backdrop of why Paul is wanting to write to this little church in Philippi to encourage them, hey, imperial cult worship is one of the things that's going on in your town, and you should probably know about it. And by the way, if you're um, encouraged to think of Jesus in a different light, or if you're encouraged to believe this person is a deity, or so on and so forth, uh, let's talk about what really is going on, okay? Um, so the, the catch is, one of the things that Paul wants to talk about is the world system. And the world system is to deify yourself, that's what these emperors are trying to do is they're trying to deify, to give Godlike status to themselves. And the idea that Paul is kind of combating is this idea that man deifies himself. okay? Now, um, you might hear that and think that's totally crazy, but in all honesty, is that not what we do? all of us, when we give uh, Our interest and our thoughts and all of our stuff and what we want to do more emphasis than anybody else's thing when what we are doing when what we're concerned with when what we are selfishly trying to hold on to when we're trying to climb the corporate ladder or you know be the next best thing or so on and so forth when we're trying to pursue something with selfish motives is that not idolatry You might not have a little carved image of something that you're quote-unquote worshiping, but the truth is, is when you put yourself on the pedestal, it's a tactic of the enemy to get you to idolize and worship yourself. You might go, well, Brent, that's crazy. I beat, myself all the t- I beat myself up all the time. I'm always constantly battling shame and guilt and all these kind of things and so on and so forth. I might want to ask you, are you the center of the majority of your conversations, even if they are shame-filled? If you're the center of your conversations, you might be idolizing yourself. It's a tactic of the enemy to keep us self-focused, we don't carve these little graven images and put them on our mantle, but the reality is is in our hearts, we have fashioned an idol to ourselves, and we put it up on the mantle of our heart, and we look at that thing every day and we talk about it. And when, when people come and, and have conversations with us, we talk about ourselves more than we talk about anything else. We're self-focused, self-driven, and the enemy loves it, even if it's shame-filled. He loves that we're focusing on ourselves. That's the point. It's a form of idolatry. So, Paul is combating this idea, right? And he goes on, he says this. Let's look in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Uh, Let's just stop right there for a second. He says, complete my joy. Make my joy complete, all right? This is an interesting phrase to think about. Um, What Paul is saying in this statement is that the ministry to the Philippian church that he is doing and has been done, uh, the fact that he helped plant this church, the fact that they are more or less almost like spiritual sons and daughters to him as he helped kind of plant this church, he's saying that the church in Philippi is a part of his offering to the Lord, Complete my joy by being this way. In um, in 1 Corinthians chapter three, it talks about how um, that we are to give an account for the things that we do here on this earth. And this is what Paul is saying here: is when I stand before Jesus and I give an account for what my life has looked like, Philippian church, you guys are part of my testimony. Did you know that as followers of Jesus, all of us are parts of other people's testimony? Maybe someone led you to the Lord. Maybe you interact with someone like a like you look up to them as a spiritual father or a spiritual mother or a mentor or something like that. Did you know that you're a part of their testimony? And Part of walking in a completed joy is this idea that when you are growing in the Lord and walking with Him and hitting it out of the park, that the person that you're walking in context in discipleship with, they get joy from that. They get fulfilled from that. That's a crazy thought. He's saying that the Philippian church is part of His testimony. In Hebrews uh, chapter 12, one of the statements that Jesus says is it says Jesus was willing to endure the cross for the joy set before him. Paul is saying this exact same thing. My joy will be complete because I'm not looking at the current circumstance that you're going through. I'm looking at who you're becoming in the Lord. That's a powerful thought process. What he's meaning by that is that there's joy in the job description. There's joy in the job description. Did you know that when Jesus looked at his mission on earth and he said, I'm going to have to die for everyone's sins, that's not going to be fun. But he's not looking at the death. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So when Jesus is looking at his mission, he's looking past the cross to the resurrection. And he's looking at all of the people that are benefiting from his salvation. The same thing here, Paul is not looking at the pain and the struggle. He's looking past it, and he's saying a completed joy is when we walk together in partnership with God. And when people are actually partnering together, that's how I can see a completed joy. Did you know that maybe some of you are experiencing the joy of the Holy Spirit because you're saved, but you haven't experienced a completed joy because you're not walking in the promise, the fulfillment, the job description that Jesus has for you. Every single one of us on this planet has a calling. We have something, a a spiritual DNA that God has designed us to walk in. Maybe you're experiencing a little bit of discontent in your life at this moment. I would encourage you to investigate this concept that maybe you have a job description and it's for that joy set before you that God is asking you to partner with him. The point of walking with the Lord is not that we sit on our rear end and just watch life go by. God wants us to get in the game. He wants us to engage that's how we experience what completed joy looks like. We partner with him to see the goals that he wants accomplished in this life. In this sentence, Paul says, have the same mind. Okay, look at, um, look at uh, verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. I. And then it says a lot of other things, like same love, full accord, one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, so on and so forth. Basically, from verse 2 all the way to uh, verse 4, the word same mind in the Greek is the main verb by which all the other ones find their fulfillment. So, Paul is essentially saying that if you have the same mind, then all of these other things will find their fulfillment. So, let's talk about that for a minute. Being of the same mind. Notice that he doesn't say, do the same mind, or create the same mind within yourself, or white knuckle and bear it, and then you'll get the same mind. He says, be the same mind. What this means is that this concept of having the same mind does not come from you. The same mind that Paul is talking about here, which, by the way, just skipping forward to um, verse 5, it says, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What he's talking about is the mind of Christ. That same mind is not something that you create. It's something that you receive, God is offering you to receive the mind of Christ. So when he says have the same mind, it's a primary verb, and then all the other things follow suit. So let's talk about that for a minute. The word same in the Greek is the word autos, which means an autonomic system. Um, For instance, uh, just to kind of clarify that, uh, in your body, you have something called the autonomic nervous system, that part of your body is responsible for your breathing, your heart beating, uh, all of the, the autonomous, the self-running things that happen. Did you know, like, think about all of the things that are going on in your body right now that you're not having to think about, okay? That's your autonomic system making things happen. So when, it, when Paul says to have the same mind, what he's saying is the word same is something that should be happening autonomously. It's something that happens naturally, organically. You don't have to make it happen. Sometimes I think disagreements happen, disunity happens, because we're trying to force it. We're trying to make agreement. We're trying to figure out how do we either stay on the same page or how do we combat uh, and be divisive. And when we're fighting, when we're thinking through this, it's a tactic of the enemy to keep us divided. Paul says when you have the same mind, this is an autonomous thing. It's Jesus, the Spirit of God being implanted in you, and then it just runs. It's an autonomic function. He says, have the same mind. Now, the word mind is one of those Greek words that you can't adequately translate into English, and so they just chose the word mind. They said, this is a good one. We'll just say have the same mind, but that's not really it in any way, shape, or form, okay? Um, the, the picture is is this. The, the, the word mind in the Greek literally means the inner place inside of you from where all your complete maturity flows. So an inner thing that's happening in you that is totally complete and absolutely excuse me, absolutely mature. Have you ever considered yourself to be totally complete and absolutely mature? If you do raise your hand, you are a liar. And liars go to hell. I'm just kidding. Liars are forgiven. This inner place within you that's completely mature, completely mature. Okay, so here's the concept. When you receive Jesus, part of the gift that he brings to you is a fully mature, autonomic you. In other words, your spirit. When you become a new creation in Christ, you are given a new spirit. And that spirit, which in Ephesians says, is seated with Christ in the heavenlies, that spirit, the real you that God saw from the beginning of time, is totally mature and completely complete. And so the point is that, is when Paul says that we must have the same mind, he's saying that we must all connect in the Spirit by the power of the Spirit. That's how we connect. There's going to be disagreements in the flesh. You know that because you live with all of us. If you live with anybody, there's a disconnect. In the flesh, there are disagreements. But the point, just like when in Hebrews 12, it says that Jesus looked past the cross for the joy set before him, which was the resurrection, same concept for us is when the flesh gets in the way, we need to look past the flesh and see into the spirit. How do we do that? From faith. We must receive faith from the Lord, knowing that every single person that claims Jesus Christ that we are to, we're called to operate in the spirit with them, to walk with them in faith, believing that God is calling everybody up. So listen, if you happen to be a spiritually mature person in the room and you're sitting down having a conversation with someone who is an ignorant dummy, guess what? See past it. Look past stupidity. The point of all of us being together is that God is doing something incredibly, incredibly miraculous. When he takes crazy, ignorant human beings and does miraculous things in them and through them, that is the power of God. Only God can take a husband and a wife and put them together and, and allow them to live together for 70 years. Only God can take a group of people like Hope City that has a a ton of different thoughts and belief systems and feelings and so on and so forth and somehow we can all choose to walk together and to look past our issues and to go, you know what, God's still God. He's called us to be together. He's called us to be the body. We've got to choose to continue to walk together. That's where the power of the spirit lies. Not when we allow our flesh to get in the way. He says that when we receive the same mind, this is what the same mind looks like, okay? So when you believe that you have this autonomous new spirit that is working in the spirit realm with the power of the Holy Spirit, when you believe that, this is what it looks like in the natural. See, Paul doesn't just leave it all this ethereal stuff up here. He talks about it, but then he brings it back down to earth. He says this, When you have the same mind, this is what it looks like. He says, you have the same love. The same love, the word love is agape, it means to choose. Essentially what that means is that you are choosing together. You're choosing the Lord together. You're choosing that which the Lord wants together. That's what uh, walking in the same love looks like. So whenever there's a disagreement, you sit down with, with your brothers and your sisters and you go, what does God want in all this? Where is God in all this? What does Scripture say whenever we have disagreements and so on and so forth? And then we go, oh, let's get on that page. Now, that requires humility, which we're going to talk about, because sometimes what you want and what God wants are not the same. He says, when you have the same mind, you have the same love. You choose the Lord together. He says, when you have the same mind, you are in full full accord. And I'm not talking about a Honda. What I'm talking about is that word accord means co-spirited. That means that your spirit in the heavenlies is connecting with other spirits in the heavenlies. That means all of us who are new creation, Jesus followers in the kingdom, we are choosing to partner together in the spirit. We're linking up together, co-spirited, unified by the Holy Spirit. That's a powerful thought process. And then he says that you have one mind that the one means singular and what he's talking about there is the mind of christ so literally that's us choosing to all get on the same page through the empowering of christ's teachings when we look through the gospels and we see what he did and we say you know what this is the way that we're going to choose to live we're going to choose to walk paul goes on to say that when you have the same mind it does not look like this it doesn't look like rivalry, and it doesn't look like conceit. Catch this. The word rival, rival, rivalry, there we go, um, it's, in the Greek, it's the same word for mercenary, somebody that is a worker for hire, somebody that is acting for their own gain regardless of the strife that it's caused. That's what rivalry means, is that when you're uh, just interested in getting your own and it doesn't matter what everybody else gets. Paul says that the same mind also doesn't look like conceit. Um, The word conceit in Greek is the word empty glory. Empty glory. Essentially, that's trying to assign kingdom values where there is none. An example of that, that would be... um, like, uh, um, if, if, if I were to be like, this table is the most important table in the kingdom of God ever created. Well, guess what? This table is going to burn, and it's a material thing, and it doesn't, it's not important in the kingdom at all. And so don't assign value where value doesn't need to be assigned. All right? So don't do things out of rivalry or conceit, He says, having the same mind also looks like humility and it looks like others are more significant than yourself. Do you have a high value for humanity? Are you willing to co-labor with other people? He says in verse four, let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. The word interest uh, in the Greek essentially means like circumstances, your stuff. He says, don't look at just your own stuff, but look at other people's stuff too. What that means is don't not look at your stuff. Did you know that each one of us has an individual calling from the Lord? Each one of you has a unique individual spiritual DNA design. You are called by God. You're invited by him to do something, partner with him in the kingdom. So you have stuff that God wants you to participate in. And then it says, don't look only to your own stuff, but look to the interests of others, to the circumstances of others. So did you know that other people have callings too? And the point is that when we look at these situations and we go, okay, God, how do we all walk together? How do we do this in an honorable way? How do we co-labor together? So what happens when you choose to co-labor with Christ is your interest or your circumstances and other people's interests and their circumstances, when you bring them together and you find that middle ground, the the term there is being like-minded. It's when you become like-minded. When you have a like mind, you can accomplish much. Scripture says a strand of two or three is not easily broken. A cord of three is not easily broken, right? And so the point is that we're choosing to walk together in unity and in the middle of that unity is the mind of Christ. That's what he's doing. Jesus came to take the thoughts of God and bring them to humanity and he began to tie them together. In Colossians chapter one, um, one of the things that, that Paul says when he was writing to the church in Colossae is he said that that Jesus reconciled all things to himself. The word reconciled, literally the picture, catch this, is through the cross of Jesus, what Jesus did is he simultaneously reached through history and to the future and simultaneously pulled all human events to himself, and through the cross, everything was purified. It's the reason why Scripture says that the patriarchs that came before Jesus, that their faith was accredited to them as righteousness. Literally, what Jesus was doing was he was pulling all of their faith into the cross, and he was completing their belief. And then now he's simultaneously reaching into the future, and he's pulling everything into the cross. And through the cross of Jesus, all history is being purified. It's being bought back. It's being redeemed. He's reconciling all things to himself, and that's what he's inviting us to do. He's saying, you have a calling on your life. Other people have callings on their life. Let's come together under the cross of Jesus And for the joy set before us, let's be willing to endure some hardships. Let's be willing to endure some struggles because Jesus said that in this life you will have struggles. And let's keep moving, believing that the gospel is advancing because Jesus builds his church. Jesus builds his kingdom, not us. He says in verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not... count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I want to point out one term there. I could talk about this for hours, but the one term that I want to point out is in verse 7. It says that he emptied himself by taking on the form of his servant. Didn't, didn't consider equality of God a thing to be grasped. By the way, like I said, keep in mind what Paul is writing against. He's writing against the deification of, hum, of humanity. He's writing against these, these rulers that are trying to deify themselves. And he says in contrast to that, Jesus emptied himself. He said when, in a world where the rulers are trying to deify themselves and they're trying to gain popularity and so on and so forth, he said the real ruler of this world, Jesus, emptied himself. He became obedient to death on a cross. By the way, I think it's interesting as well that when in that verse, in verse 7, when it says he emptied himself, compare that to the word conceit, which means empty glory. Don't do things out of conceit, out of empty glory The paradoxical statement, the contrast there is Paul is saying Jesus didn't do these things for conceit or for empty glory. He's actually doing it. He's emptying himself for eternal glory. That's the point of what Jesus was doing. So the concept that I want you to think on is when Jesus chose to allow himself to be emptied, the the picture there is not like Jesus took all of his deity, his divine uh, God nature, and and he said, you know what? I'm gonna sell this off, and I'm gonna put it on the shelf, and and I'm gonna become fully human, and I'm gonna disassociate with my divinity. Jesus was still 100% God and 100% man, okay? The only way that God could have gotten an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of humanity is if God himself sacrificed himself. He's the only perfect pure thing, okay? So it's not that God chose to, or Jesus chose to completely disassociate from his divinity. What happened is uh, this is an expression of, of Jesus as deity, as God, because only God can actually do this. Did you know that you can't become any more or any less than who you are? try. Right now, make yourself less than who you are. Right now, make yourself more than who you are. You can't do it. Now, you can conceitedly think you're more than you are, or you can try to humble yourself down to nothing, but the reality is, is you're who you are. You can't change that. The only person that changes who you are is the person of Jesus and the empowering of the Spirit. Only God himself can do that. And so what Jesus did in the emptying of himself is he chose not to participate in divine things. It's like, imagine um, um, Jesus in our current context. Jesus shows up on the scene, and um, he could teleport anywhere he wanted to go, right? I mean, immediately, just think about it, and he's over in Israel, or think about it, and he's in Australia, or whatever. But instead of that, Jesus chooses to fly on an airplane. Why would he do that? Because he's operating in human, natural ways to show us how to live. That's the point of why Jesus did everything that he did under the power of the Holy Spirit as a human, was to show us that we're not just bystanders watching a story, we're actually active participants. Because if Jesus did all the things that he did because he was divine, then that makes all of us bystanders in the story of God. What God wants is us to be active participants in his story. He wants us to participate. So Jesus operated as fully divine, yet not utilizing his divine nature and allowing the Holy Spirit to empower him the way a human would so that it shows us how we are to operate in this planet. That's a powerful statement. And because of that, it says, Therefore, in verse 9, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have obeyed, So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The point of what Paul is saying in this entire message is that God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish in your life when you allow him the space. It's God that does it, it's not you you can't change yourself, only God can. Only the presence of God in your life can actually begin to change who you are, who you believe you are. So Paul is writing this to say, hey, get off the altar of your life. Get off the, quit, quit, quit being an idol. Uh, don't, don't idolize your own self, jump off that pedestal And allow God to change who you are. Because when you do, he will do the work. God himself will do the work.